This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What up, my homies? Oh my god, this episode, I'm so excited for you to hear. I'm Lisa Billiou, and welcome to another episode of Women of Impact. But oh my god, are you ready for this spicy two-part convo today as we unravel the mysteries of love, lust, and chemistry with the neuroscientist Tara Swart. Oh my god, she's such a freaking powerhouse, guys. And she's also known as a resilience guru that makes science of you practical. And she's here to supercharge our lives, guide us on when to call it quits and when to strengthen our mental resilience to win at that dating game and to get back your sanity during this period of building a relationship, starting a relationship or continuing a relationship. So I hope this episode smacks you in the face just as much as it did me. Now, ladies, every episode I release is about empowering you to be more confident and more freaking badass. Now, in order for us to actually start to echo that, I ask you, and I know a lot of people do, I know a lot of podcast hosts do, but it really does matter that if you listen to something that you really like, why don't you go rate and review it? It's the thing that people go to to see if the podcast is worth listening to. So if you actually do think other women out there need this episode and need this podcast just like you, please do rate, review and share this episode because that is how we're going to honestly impact women across the globe together as part of this girl gang here at Women of Impact. All right, now make sure to check out part two of this conversation tomorrow so you don't miss out on any tips for mastering chemistry and attraction. But now let's just dive in with my girl, Tara Swart. It feels wonderful to be desired. It feels amazing to have an attraction and intense chemistry with somebody when it's with the right person. So how do we actually create the love juice known as oxytocin? So there's a few ways we could look at this. And when I speak about this normally just in a sciencey way, I basically say that the hormone oxytocin correlates with our feelings of bonding. And the main ways of getting that into your life are through physical touch mostly. So hugging, kissing, cuddling, handshaking, um, stroking. And then, you know, if you're lonely, if you're if you're not in partnership, self-massage, going for a massage, having a warm bath. So anything that makes you like physically feel warm and have skin-to-skin contact. Eye contact also does it, but to a lesser extent. Laughing together induces oxytocin too. And, you know, let's state the obvious. When we have sex, we release a lot of oxytocin. Fun fact for you, women release oxytocin whenever they have sex Men release testosterone whenever they have sex, but only oxytocin if they're in love with the woman. Oh my God. Why is that? It's an evolutionary mechanism, but it's the explanation for the fact that if a woman sleeps with a man enough times, she's going to start falling in love. Whereas for a man, it's not necessarily going to happen. And, you know, that is the basis of so many relationship issues. You know, you've heard it before. Let's keep it casual but we are having sex and the, you know, the woman kind of thinks at some point he's going to change his mind and we're going to be in a relationship. But if, if that's what the guys told you from the start, physiologically, chemically, it's not going to change for him. It's more of a decision for a man to say, okay, maybe I want to settle down with this woman and like be in love with her and like, you know, create a nest kind of thing. And then, you know, they can start like letting the effects of oxytocin have an impact on them. Um, and this, you know, I, you know, I never talk about hard wiring. I talk about soft wiring. So something that's parallel to that, that we know about is in history, 
like far back, like in the cave, um, people weren't monogamous and men would have children with multiple women. And this was really because just passing on your genes was the most important thing. For quite a long time now, most societies have asked us to live in a unit family. So be monogamous, have children with one other person. And what we've seen literally only in the last five, not even 10 years, is that dad's brains are getting rewired by oxytocin. So when a man becomes a dad for the first time, his oxytocin um, levels increase in a burst and make him bond with the baby more rather than want to compete with the baby through testosterone. And actually their testosterone levels drop. And if the baby sleeps in the same room as you, the man's testosterone levels drop even further. So they become much more cuddly and bonded and they want to stay at home and be with the baby. They, they don't want to go out hunting, you know, to work basically, um, or, or leave you and look for another partner to impregnate. They want to stay as part of that family. So we do know that our behavior can change some of our wiring, but it takes millennia. And currently that status of how much women bond with someone that they have sex with and how much men do, that hasn't really changed since we lived in the cave. Men um, have 17 times as much testosterone as women circulating during a day. So if you think of it like a seesaw, mm. for us, we don't have much testosterone, but like having an orgasm induces so much oxytocin that it really overrides the testosterone and makes you just want to bond. But it, proportionally, the testosterone levels are so high that even if there's oxytocin around because you have been cuddling and you have been having skin to skin contact and you do, you know, you are fond of each other, but that actual falling in love, that the threshold is just totally different. And that's why I always, you know, if you watch reality shows or, you know, you listen to your friends who are single, it's that you just hear it over and over again. This is casual. We're not in a relationship. And if those are the words that are being spoken to you, you need to listen to them. Because in this case, the words are overriding the actions, even if the person's having sex with you. But I always say these things work in three, you know, three ways. So there's the words that are spoken, the body language or the physical actions, and that's also eye contact and facial expressions, and then hormones. And so obviously if a man you know, says, I love you, I only want to be with you, I want to marry you, um, and the actions go along with that, then the hormones are there. But if they're not saying that because the hormones aren't there, then whatever actions you're carrying out is not, is not strong enough of those three to make that turn to a different outcome. So let's say you're going on a date. If you go to a comedy show and so you laugh together, that would be a great way for you guys to really bond. Yeah, yeah, that's a, re that's a really good example. I've never thought of that one before. There's, and so the emotions that correlate with oxytocin and bonding are joy, excitement, love, and trust. Oh. So, and this is very individual. I can't tell you or our listeners what brings you joy. You know, if you can work out by journaling or something, what brings you joy? What makes you excited? What motivates you to get out of bed in the morning? What do you love? Um, and, you know, how, how does your trust threshold work? And then equally, if you can do that for your partner or, you know, the person that you're trying to date, understand what brings them joy and motivates them, et cetera, then that's a very powerful basis, you know, upon which to start. Um, and so also understanding that on the opposite end of the spectrum, the things that break down bonding and relationship are fear, anger, disgust, contempt, shaming, guilt. So we want to avoid those, you know, inducing those sorts of emotions. And then there's a really interesting one in the middle, which is surprise. So that can tip you one way or the other. And the best examples of that are watching a horror movie where you don't know if you're going to like scream or laugh in the next millisecond. Mm -hmm. Or being at the top of a roller coaster where you're kind of like exhilarated, but also like feel sick and terrified. So in real life, um, doing something surprising can either move you from fear to trust or trust to fear. Oh. And when I say fear, I mean that circle of emotions like anger, disgust, shame, whatever. And so surprise can be used, you know, very tactically. It, it can even be used in the bedroom. I mean, if you think about the fact that if you suddenly 
introduce an element or behave a different way in the bedroom than you have previously in the relationship, that could be a really good thing, right? Mm -hmm. But equally, if that comes as a bit of an unexpected shock to your partner, that could actually ruin the moment. So it's kind of like that. Mm. So what's happening, you said trust. What's happening to the brain then that trust is a way of um, developing oxytocin? I think that one, most things work both ways around. But I would say with that one, the trust is built through building up the oxytocin. You can't really do trust. Do you know what I mean? Trust really has to be earned and it has to be maintained and it can be lost so easily. So I would say you can't say like, oh, you know, well, I did actually say to you before this, I trust you. But I can't say, Lisa, you have to trust me. That's not going to work. I have to demonstrate to you that I am trustworthy for you. And then that will start to build your oxytocin levels every time you see me or speak to me. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, something that's built over time. But the, the physical contact, that does induce little bursts of oxytocin as you go along. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And then you uh, you laid out all the things that I kind of think in my head is like the anti-oxytocin uh, things. Yeah. Um, so contempt, resentment, things like that. Mm-hmm. What are the acts that people do that maybe they don't realise are actually um, blocking the oxytocin? So interestingly... In like large pieces of research, the one that they've narrowed it down to that is the most damaging in a relationship is a contemptuous facial expression. Mm. So obviously you can't unhear words that your partner has said to you, but you can kind of talk through that and maybe come to a different understanding sometimes, but words can be very hurtful and damaging. But there are certain facial expressions that if you see your partner make them, is very difficult to ever get over, especially because if you, let's say, even just you perceive that your partner has looked at you with contempt or disgust, you may or may not be correct because you'll be looking through your filters, which, you know, goodness knows what childhood and parental and societal and school programming have built up in your mind about what you perceive as contempt. Um, Let's say they even did look at you like that. Imagine going to your partner and saying, the last time we had an argument, I think you looked at me with disgust. The most likely response you're going to get is, no, I didn't. Mm. So how do you actually ever both agree on that? It's really difficult. Whereas if you had said something like, you know, I really hate it when you do X, you can actually talk through that. Um, so these, and, and often it's micromuscular changes in the person's face. It's just a narrowing of the eyes or a kind of, you know, looking down their nose at you kind of thing. Um it's so subtle that it's very difficult to prove that it was done or understand the intent of the person that might have made that face. Um, and also just, you know, what I sometimes bear in mind that some sometimes people's like just face at rest without them really thinking of any emotion could be enough of a trigger to someone that, oh, like, you know, I felt like you thought badly of me when you were looking at me that day. And you know, it's just two different people's perspectives. Mm. So, um, so you you said a couple of the things that are signs, I guess, of contempt. Um, looking down your nose. Um, I assume people like tut. And there's a whole study. Have you heard of yeah. the um, the Gottman Institute? Did mm-hmm. that one study where they turned off the volume, and they had these couples walk into the room, and mm. they would just watch them, mm. and they would see their body language. And because contempt is like one of the biggest signs of a divorce, they could. Um, accurately detect, I think with 90% accuracy yeah. of who was going to get divorced just by the way that their facial structure was because they could sense contempt. Yeah. And so I think it's like the darting of the eyes or the like the roll, uh, I should say the rolling of the eyes. Yeah. Rolling of the eyes, like ignoring, walking past, brushing up so many little things. Mm. And interestingly, I've never really thought about why this is the case before, but it's very small things. So it's kind of like microaggressions and you know, you can get 10 of those without really being conscious that that's going on mm-hmm. till it reaches some kind of tipping point. Whereas, you know, obviously if there's like domestic abuse or violence, you are aware of it. You know, you may not um, necessarily respond to it in the way that people would expect you to. Um, and that's for all sorts of complex reasons. But these more subtle micro aggressions are their own thing in a you know different way. So talk to me about stress, because I've heard you talk um, talk that stress 
when it's something that you do together and you come through the stress together, actually that can be a bonding mechanism, but stress in and of itself can actually be something that can potentially break a relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you reminded me of that because you know how you were saying like if you go through something really intense together, like whether it's laughing together or just an intense experience that can bond you. So that can actually be a bad experience, I guess, like we said with the horror movie, but um, not necessarily bad, but stressful. Like if you do a bungee jump together, the fear and apprehension that you have around that can really bond you. And again, I I use reality shows as an example because they are basically a psychological playground. I mean, I watch them because it's it's like uh-huh, um, that's so- what you tell people. <laughs> that's why I watch them. It's all for work. People are always so surprised that I watch them. And then I basically say it's like sociology and psychology experiments. But um, often when people go through, you know, whether it's Love Island or I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. It's an intense experience that Mm. can't be shared with many others. You always hear people at the end saying, we're going to be friends for life. And, you know, whether or not that turns out to be true, it's the feeling of that shared intense experience that makes people think that that is true. Um, So that can be, it can be a negative thing where you were all in fear, but you were in it together. Mm. But then terrible, terrible tragedies like the loss of a child increases the chances of a couple getting divorced by a massive amount. And that is because the the research talks about the male and female journey, but just let's say it's the journey of two people who process their emotions differently, means that if you're suffering in grief or stress or loss or scarcity, that let's say it was you and I, and you know, it's just friends, that if I process that really differently emotionally and you're going on your journey with the same thing that we've both experienced, it's really hard to be there for each other. Because not only are you already struggling with your own emotions, but if they're very different to your friends or your partners, then it's hard for you to put yourself in their position. You know that phrase, put yourself in their shoes. Mm-hmm. I always say, put yourself in their brain. But that is hard to do. Like it's, it's hard to do at the best of times. It's really hard to do if you're compromised by stress because when you are stressed, we go at the other end from oxytocin. So then we have this hormone cortisol. And one of the ways that cortisol helps you to get through stress is it changes where the blood flow in your brain goes. So it brings it down to just survival mode. Like what do I need to do today to just get through this day minimum? It doesn't allow the blood to flow to the parts of your brain that allow you to be creative or think flexibly or think out of the box. So it just really shuts down your thinking when you need it the most. And that's why it's important to like be mindful of like keeping up your resilience and doing things like journaling and mindfulness, which we can come to later. Mm. Yeah. That's why I was actually, as you were talking, I thought, wow, it would really be difficult if you were um, in a relationship with somebody and you're the person that is trying to be mindful, trying to work on yourself, really trying to be present and your partner isn't. And so your development of, I assume then the cortisol, um, as you're trying to kind of lower it, if your partner isn't, then now you don't become aligned. And I always wondered about the child thing. Like it's hot. I couldn't imagine a worse feeling than losing a child. But I always wondered why it never brought people together because I'm like, wow, this is something you're both suffering with. How come you don't bond? Like, obviously it's a horrible way to bond, but you would, from uh, the outside, not understanding, you know, the neuroscience behind it is I would assume that would bring you together, not tear you apart. I'm really glad that you said you've you've kind of seen that anecdotally Mm -hmm. as well, because it, it does seem odd. You'd think that, all you'd want to do is cling to each other. But I think the the grief is so overwhelming that it's very hard to think of anyone else, you know, at least temporarily. And maybe by the time you come up for air, you've drifted apart so much that it's really difficult to reconnect. Mm. The scary thing about cortisol is that it's not like oxytocin. It doesn't depend on actually doing something like hugging you mm. or holding you or kissing you. It is like other sex steroid hormones like estrogen, progesterone. It actually leaks out of your body through your sweat. So if you are in close proximity to somebody who's really stressed, whether they're repressing it or not, that is going to artificially raise your stress levels. How is that possible? 
It's possible in the same way that women who live or work closely together synchronise their periods mm. within two months. And that's so quick. Um, and that comes from evolution. We needed to be fertile at the same time so the alpha male could impregnate us all. Um, and we don't need that anymore in this day and age, but it still happens. Mm. And so with stress, there's a reason that the leader's stress should impact other people. Because let's say you were at war or you're out hunting, you needed to know what the leader was feeling so you could respond to that. And we're talking about times where people couldn't speak yet. So it was grunting, gesturing, but it was also like relating to each other hormonally. And that doesn't matter if you're male or female. It's who's more senior in the pack or the pair, mm -hmm. their stress levels will impact the other one. Or let's say even if like you're just equal in a relationship, the more stressed person will affect the less stressed person. If you own your own business, when an employee leaves your company, whether on good terms or bad, it can feel, I hate to say it, but it actually can feel personal, like you and you alone are the one to blame. And it actually may even trigger you to lock down your business, not open yourself up and not actually risk trying anyone else. Like you actually would your heart after a bad breakup and avoid looking for that new partner altogether. Well, let's face it, sometimes we can do that with highs as well. And trust me, guys, I've been there. I get the thought of bringing in a new stranger into your business actually fills your heart with more anxiety than it does love and joy. But when you post your jobs on LinkedIn, you can actually feel the confidence that you will find the right person for the right job fast because LinkedIn isn't actually just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion billion with a B professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because guys, it gives you access to professionals that you actually can't find anywhere else. And so LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive, which then makes hiring with confidence easy when you have that many quality candidates. And it's so easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get qualified candidates within 24 hours. So post your jobs for free at linkedin.com slash Lisa. That's linkedin.com slash Lisa to post your job for utterly free. And of course, terms and conditions always apply. I'm going to be utterly honest. There is little more damaging to your confidence than feeling weak and helpless and just struggling to get the care that you actually need from your doctor. And trust me, guys, I unfortunately speak from experience because when I was struggling with crippling, crippling gut issues about nine years ago now, it took me years, years to find a doctor that not only could I connect with, but a doctor that actually would listen, wouldn't gaslight me and actually take my words and my experience as truth so that they could actually eventually help me heal and not just to give me another freaking pill and then push me out the door. But now, my homie, you don't have to struggle to find the right doctor for you anymore. And that's thanks to ZocDoc. ZocDoc is an absolutely free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and then instantly book appointments with them online. And with ZocDoc, you can actually filter by insurance, location and specialities to find the perfect fit for you, not for your friend, not for anyone else, but for you. Plus, on top of that, you can actually go and read verified reviews from real patients to find the doctor that you can actually trust. And typically, wait times for booking an appointment are days, not weeks. Because let's face it, when you're sick, you need to see someone right now. So my homie, do not, I repeat, do not neglect your health. Instead, go over to ZocDoc dot com slash lisa and download the zocdoc app for absolutely free then find and book a top rated doctor today that's zocdoc z-o-c-d-o-c dot com slash lisa zocdoc dot com slash lisa yeah. Um, and I've heard you talk about um, the impact of the language that you can use. And so if you're the type of person that uses a language um, that is maybe different to the, your partners, in even the language you use in your mind, I assume it will have a different effect. And the example that you gave was um, the, the people that read words around retirement mm. end up moving slower. Mm -hmm. 
Talk to me about that because I found this fascinating. And again, always going back to how that, like we don't realize the words that we're maybe using. And so when it comes to, especially my audience, if if you've been in a relationship or if you've been heartbroken mm-hmm. or if something bad has happened um, in that way, um, the value tagging, as you call it, attachment to maybe these words of I'm no good or I was, re- you know, this was my fault mm-hmm. can actually have a massive detriment to them potentially, and this is my language, but potentially finding someone later because you're so stuck. So that was just an experiment that was done on medical students. So healthy young people, they had to walk between five rooms and in each room, there were pieces of paper with five words on them on a table and they had to string a sentence out of those words. They thought that was the whole experiment, but it was actually a trick in that four of the rooms just had neutral words. One of the rooms had bungalow, walk, Florida, sunshine, beach. Now, if you're American, those words will tag in your brain as something to do with becoming retired. Really loose association, Mm. but there nonetheless. And so, even though they entered the rooms in different orders because they were all going around in a circle, 80% of them walked more slowly out of that room than any of the other rooms, just because they were vaguely reminded of retirement. So I want to apply that to how that you know, could affect us. And that is both if you are constantly saying, I'm not good enough, I'm not thin enough, I'm not clever enough, I'm never going to get that done. If that's your internal narrative, Just ask yourself now, you don't need a neuroscience to tell you, what is that doing to your body? Yeah, that's so, and um, talk to me about the value tagging that you, um, because this is again, so powerful. So value tagging is based on the fact that we are bombarded with so much information every day that we have to naturally filter some of that out. So for example, you're not aware of the clothes on your body all day, even though you have like millions of receptors in your skin to feel stuff. So we filter that out because it's it's not useful information for us during the day. And so there's selective filtering. Then there's something called selective attention, which means that the brain directs us to things that are of interest to us, like surviving and thriving in life. And value tagging sits behind that and tags, in order of importance, the things that it wants us to attend to. And there's two systems within that. One is logical. So that's literally don't like step into the road without seeing if a car's coming, you know, literal like danger to your life. Yeah. yeah. And then there's the warm or emotional part, which is the things that you really want in your life. You know, whether that is a partner or um, a family or travel or, you know, be your own boss kind of thing. The things that mean something to you deep down and longer term, which naturally we don't attend to every day because we're busy. So, you know, it's sort of what we have to do is is ramp up the importance of that emotional stuff and not just be living on the, this is what I need to do to survive today. Um, but when I talk about distractions, I want to add in another one that relates back to the language thing that you mentioned, which is we all have our own internal narrative and we may have people, you know, be our cheerleaders or criticise us and we may be very conscious of being able to respond to that. But this is where gaslighting and microaggressions come in, which is people just making snidey little comments that maybe it takes you a bit of time to realise that actually that's chipping away at my self-esteem. So again, if you think about the impact of mind over matter, if somebody says to you every day, Lisa, you um, you look really good considering that you've put on a bit of weight since last year, you know, but you're looking really good. What's that doing to your body already? Did you feel something? Yeah. Yeah. And that's like so scary. And it's obviously not true at all. No, no, no. I don't don't take you personally. (laughs) But I I said it without warning you because it makes people shudder Mm -hmm. because you immediately think, is that actually true? Um, Have I put on weight since last year? And even if you can very quickly come to the conclusion that it's not true, it's already done some damage. Yeah. God, this is so powerful. I'd love to even go a bit deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of my 
my audience, they'll write in the comments a lot of the time, especially when I talk about relationships, like, well, I'm just not going to have a relationship. You know, mm. I, I've guys are, guys are terrible. Mm -hmm. um, there's no good men out there. Mm. Um, I've given up on love because I was hurt before, which I completely understand mm -hmm. why people tr shut down as a protective mm -hmm. mechanism. Mm -hmm. But explain to me what that's actually doing to the brain um, in everything that we're talking about with the language that we speak and then the value tagging. Yeah, so... Like you, I also think it's perfectly natural to feel like that after the breakdown of a relationship. Um, but what we need to be mindful of doing is not letting that last forever. Because of course we're going to protect ourselves if we've just had our hearts broken. But what I, the way that I work with people is with those statements, when they're ready, not like straight after a heartbreak, is I ask them to not justify it to me, but to go home and ask yourself, are those statements actual 100% fact? Is it actually true that there is not a single good man out there? Is it actually true that all men are awful? Is it actually true that if you ever dared to open up your heart again, the only outcome is that it would get broken? If you really think about it, the answers to those questions are no. So then you have to make a decision that, okay, everything that's happened to me in my life so far has put me in this place where I don't want to risk getting married again and because I don't want to get hurt again. And I have seen several examples of men that have treated myself or other women badly. And that's, you know, the data that I'm basing this statement on. So what you need to do is, first of all, decide if, because of all those reasons, you really want to be on your own for the rest of your life. Um... And whether that's actually likely, um, one of my kind of much older mentor friends um, said to me when I once said to him, you know, um, I'm just not interested in, in um, having a relationship again. And he said, the problem is, Tara, men will still be interested in you. Mm. <laughs> um, and I never forgot that. So, you know, to also ask yourself that however much you're saying, I'm never going to like trust someone again or be in a relationship again, chances are you know, I guess depending slightly on how old you are, that someone's going to come along who's really sweet and really nice and really genuine and hasn't had that backstory and what just wants to give it a go. Then you need to collect data to the contrary of what you've made yourself believe. So look around, you know, even if you've had a really bad experience and some of your girlfriends have, um, you must have friends who are happily married or, you know, have had a heartbreak and then found somebody really lovely or, you know, even in the absence of finding a partner, just being able to work on themselves and get themselves back to that place of my heart's open now, even though I never thought it would be again. So gathering evidence that is positive for you. And I think, again, not what you have to say to your friends or justify to your family, but, you know, deep down, if you would love to be in partnership again, then just for yourself, gather evidence that that's possible. Yeah. Once you believe it's possible, everything else will start to change. You don't actually have to do anything that differently. You don't have to go on a hundred dates. You don't have to tell everyone that you're looking for someone. You know, you, if you do that internal work, things will shift in the world around you. I love that so much. And you also say that like it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. Explain that to me. So what we don't believe is possible doesn't tend to happen. And the most classic example of this is a tangible one. It's not like a love one. It's um, a human being able to run the four minute mile. <laughs> so we literally did not think that was possible that, you know, there was a time within which the fastest man on earth could run a mile and it was over four minutes. And for all sorts of, you know, whatever the apparatus was that we had at the time, physiologically, it was believed that it is impossible for a human to run a mile in less than four minutes. And then Roger Bannister famously ran a mile in less than four minutes. Well, within two or three months of that, seven or eight other people suddenly did it, having like no one else has ever done it in the world before. Mm. So it's once we knew it was possible, I don't know if people actually did things differently or they just went out there thinking that it's possible and they ran and it happened. But let's just like bring that back to the example that we're giving, which is that you've been through heartbreak that makes you feel like you just never, ever want to let anybody let you feel like that again. So you are going to be closed, protective, you know, not take up opportunities. What if you can 
give yourself enough examples of friends or maybe not even people you know, but just like, you know, high profile people or stories that you've heard of people who have overcome that and then been really happy afterwards. What's the danger of showing yourself as many examples of that as the bad examples that you've got? And I've actually have a quote of yours. You meet people at the level of psychological wound that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, is that kind of like what we're talking about here was if you, if you're, so A, the belief, totally get it. But then also if there's a wound that maybe you don't, um, you don't actually work through, mm-hmm. then you're attracting other people that have that similar type of belief. Mm-hmm. And the way that that manifests is that you'll really get each other because you'll be coming from a very mm-hmm. same story, very same, you know, similar narrative and filters in life. Somebody who's very whole, who's evolved spiritually, who's worked on themselves, who's done that psychological stuff to manage their emotions, isn't going to be in a relationship with somebody who's got trust issues. It's just, that doesn't happen. You know, you meet people who are at the similar level to you. Interestingly, since I made that quote, somebody wrote on social media, I guess you leave people for the same reasons. And that hit me like, Wow, that is profound. And it's so true. So I don't know, I can't remember the name of who that was, but if you're listening, thank you. Um, So yeah, if you are in partnership or in friendship or in a group and you start doing that work and evolving emotionally and spiritually, chances are you will lose some friends and maybe even lose Mm. your partner. Um, But you've got to be able to think of that as a good thing. Yeah. And um, I read a study once that said, I think it was Forbes, that said there's something called divorce contagion. Mm-hmm. And if your friend has got divorced or someone that you know has got divorced, you're, there's 75% more likely to also get divorced. Yeah. Explain that to me because I, I don't quite understand it. Okay. So um, it's actually under an umbrella of something called social contagion, which is that things that your peers do impact you. So it's not literally like, oh, you know, Jane got divorced, so I'm going to get divorced. It's if there were underlying problems in your marriage, but nobody in your social group's divorced, you're going to just bury it and keep going, right? As soon as somebody else gets divorced, you might think, well, actually, they've been brave to leave their marriage and my marriage isn't really, you know, as great as I say it is when we're all out to dinner together. And you look at this person and you see them, you know, be brave, move on, maybe meet somebody, you know, that's more on their level. And that makes you think that that could be the outcome for you. Um, And, you know, absolutely doesn't have to include them meeting someone else. It could just be that not being in that relationship is, is better for them. And if you identify with that, it might just give you the confidence and the courage to make that step that you wouldn't have made. Um, So it probably usually takes somebody who cannot tolerate being in their relationship anymore to give permission almost mm. for people who kind of were, you know, on the on the fence to say, actually, I think it might be better for me to, to leave this marriage. And so um, weight is another one. I mean, you rarely see a group of friends where, um, you know, everybody's kind of at a average weight and one person's really obese or one person's like super skinny or vice versa. You rarely see a group of friends who are all overweight with one friend who's of, you know, average weight. So um, what tends to happen is that if you feel a bit of societal pressure to stay in a certain shape because of the people that you hang around with, if they all start putting on weight, then it's kind of okay for you to. Um, And, you know, most people put on weight in the pandemic, right? Mm. And there was a definite kind of camaraderie from saying, oh my goodness, I put on so much weight because of like the stress or because we're eating like, you know, so well at home or, you know, we're eating more junk or whatever it was. Um, People could connect with each other because a lot of people put on weight during the pandemic. And there would definitely be groups of friends that once that was, you know, behind us to whatever extent it is, would just say, well, you know, this is the weight I am now. And they'd all say, yeah, you know, me too. Um, that's not going to change now at our age. And But, you know, I was definitely in the group of friends that were all like, we need to get back to our pre-pandemic mm-hmm. weight, you know. Um, 
So of course you're influenced by the people around you because if nobody else around me said, I want to get back to my pre-pandemic weight, maybe I would have let it slide. I don't know. Um, but I wasn't in that group. So for me, that didn't happen. But for a lot of people, it would have. As an entrepreneur, one of the biggest challenges you will face is the negative voice in your head. You know who I'm talking about. That may be not so small part of you that loudly doubts your abilities to actually pull the things off and make a living from your passion project. But you've got to overcome that negative voice in your head, homie, because I'm telling you, you can do it especially if you use Shopify. Now, Shopify is an all-in-one global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From launching your business to hitting a million dollars, Shopify has got you completely covered. And with all the built-in Magic AI award-winning customer service and the internet's best converting checkout, you have everything you need to shut down the voice of doubt and make all your amazing business dreams a reality. That's exactly why, guys, I love Shopify. So if you want to start growing your business with more customers and sales, shut that negative voice down and prove her wrong that you can do it, Shopify is here for you. So go and sign up for just $1 a month with your trial period at shopify.com slash Lisa, all lowercase. Again, guys, you can go to shopify.com slash Lisa right now to grow your business, no matter where you are and what stage it's in. That's shopify.com slash Lisa. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, I can also understand though, like if you're with a group of friends and let's say there's five of you and everyone's getting a salad, well, it's you're more likely to go for the healthy option mm. than go, I'll have like the, the French fries and the, you know, deep fried chicken. Um, so that kind of habitual type thing when you're around other people, I yeah. can get. But the divorce thing really hit me. And I love that how you broke that down in that it's giving you somewhat permission. Yeah. But my question now is if you were around people that were truly in beautiful relationships, would that also have a pos- that same effect on you? Yeah. So if, if, that's, if that's what you see, and a lot of people say, you know, my parents were married forever and they really loved each other. And so that's their model of what a relationship mm. should be. Um, and equally, you know, you see I, I see, I hear this more in the younger age group now that, you know, all my friends' parents are divorced. So that obviously normalizes divorce. Mm. Um, doesn't mean that you think it's a good thing to either stay together forever or get divorced. It's just what's normal for you. So if you see most of your friends making choices of somebody that is loyal, that, you know, is family focused, that um, is, you know, dependable and faithful, then you're much more likely to make that. But, you know, if you're seeing, if it's like, oh, I like a bad boy, you know, the, the most important thing to me is that he's really good looking, then you're probably going to, you know, you're not going to want to have the ugliest boyfriend of your whole group, are you? You're going to want that, that type. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And would the same then apply if you were single and just hanging around single people? It definitely normalizes it. So it doesn't mean at all that you, you know, that you can't meet someone, but it makes it easier to stay single for sure, mm. because, because you don't feel like the odd one out. Um, and of course, what, what happens within that is that, and I think this is an understandable narrative, but a lot of people will say, well, I'm perfectly happy being single. You know, I don't want to compromise the things that are really important to me for someone else. And so, you know, what I've kind of always tried to do as a bit kind of to give people permission is, you know, at the times that I have been single is to say, I'd actually really love to be in partnership again. And I find that every single time I say that, the person who's just said, well, I'm fine being single, um, says, actually, yeah, I would too. So it's quite interesting. Mm. Um, I think there's a lot of, you know, we do have to put on a lot of bravado because I still think society judges you for being single. So if you are, even if deep down you don't want to be, it's like, it feels like you have to justify that you're fine with it mm. and it's not actually what you want. And, you know, there are so many jokes about 
people saying, you know, all my parents want is for me to get married and have children and settle down. And that's not actually what's most important to me because I, you know, I love my career or whatever. Um, but I think if you can be really honest with your friends and say, you know, it's great to have a wonderful career and you can have both. And maybe you would like love, you know, to get the benefits of being in a relationship too. Then I think, you know, people are really honest. I think it's it's kind of like fear and shame that makes us say that we don't. And, you know, obviously there are people that don't want to be in a relationship, but I think there are a lot of people that do that find it hard to admit that they want that when they don't have it. Yeah, it seems like it's definitely a protective mechanism, which mm. I completely get, especially if you've um, been hurt before and you mm. can't imagine ever, you know, giving yourself over to somebody again. Mm. But going back to the thing that we were saying earlier, if you're just, if you deep down do want to, and again, zero judgment if you don't, like respect that you know mm -hmm. what you want. Mm -hmm. But if deep down you do, but you're saying you don't, now I can imagine there's a disconnect between basically the brain and the heart. Oh, that's such a sweet way of putting it. Yeah. And I think the way that I would put it is that this can change for people at different times. So if I even think of my own story, I was, you know, married for about 10 years, got divorced in my mid thirties and definitely said, I will never, ever, ever get married again. Oh, did you? Yeah. But I didn't want to feel like that again, that disappointment and that loss and the, you know, there is a bit of shame associated with it. But it was mostly for myself, the completely broken heart. I just never, ever wanted to like go through that again. So I did date, but I didn't like give my heart to anyone. And then I remember when I met my second husband, I remember the moment I was standing in the garden that I thought this person could totally break my heart now. And instead of feeling fear, I thought, wow, you have got over what happened before and brought yourself to the place where you've put your heart on a plate for someone else again. Well done. What did you end up doing to be able to go from heartbroken to be able to put your heart on a plate again? Um, well, it took a lot of time, <laughs> um, but I really did delve into the spiritual work. So for me, I became very interested in Buddhist teachings and Jungian psychology. And you know, I don't know why I went down with a rabbit hole with those two things particularly at that time, but I did. And I think, you know, that at any time or for any person, it could be another um, form of psychology or manifestation or another like spiritual philosophy, whatever works for you. Um, and yeah, so I just really worked on myself and based on, you know, what we were discussing earlier, which is you're going to meet someone at the level of psychological wound that you're at. I wasn't doing it to meet someone. I was doing it to build myself back up again because, you know, I had got married quite young. So my sense of identity of who I was, you know, not in partnership with my first husband was, I didn't really like know what it was. Um, so I had to just kind of like get a really good sense of who I was again. And around that same time, I also quit my job as a medical doctor and started up my business and moved countries. So there was a lot going on. So I did need to like really like gather myself together and be like, okay, you know, there's, this is a whole new big start. How do you want this to pan out? Who do you want to be? Like what's going to make you proud of yourself? And mm. because I did that, I got myself to the place where I was like, I the way I'll put it, I was somebody that someone would want to marry. I wasn't that before, you know, it was like along the way, several times with, because I've got really good friends. I was like, would I want to marry me right now? No. <laughs> That's a strong question to ask yourself. Yeah. How were you able to say no without eroding your self-esteem? Because my self-esteem was where it was. I was just being honest. It was literally, would I, you know, am I marriage material? Am I like a great catch right now for someone or for myself? Like if I met somebody that was like me right now, would I think I want to spend the rest of my life with this person and they'll always have my back and be my best friend? I knew I wasn't capable of that at mm. that time. So, um, and I didn't want to do it for someone else. I wanted to do it for myself. So I, I had self-esteem and it was only when I had self-esteem that I actually met someone else. 
As a neuroscientist, I really want to understand addiction. And addiction okay. in there, you didn't expect that one, did you? <laughs> I was well, well, it's actually very much connected because okay. there's a, a lot of people that I know, especially when I was younger, that were addicted to a uh, to the drama mm -hmm. of a relationship. Mm -hmm. And it becomes like this toxic cycle that you're mm -hmm. in. But even when it, it had nothing to do with abuse, so it wasn't like they couldn't physically leave, mm -hmm. but they would just became addicted to the highs and the lows. Mm -hmm. And I've heard so many, or I've seen so many relationships where people like, they're screaming at each other, mm. yelling, mad, hatred. Mm -hmm. And the next thing they're doing is having crazy ass sex. <laughs> so what is happening to the brain? Why do people get addicted to that type of cycle? I think a message that I really want to put across quite strongly is related to what I said earlier about it took me quite a lot of time, mm -hmm. is that age does play a part in it. So the way that our brains develop is um, from zero to two, obviously a baby goes from being completely helpless, can't control its own bladder or bowels or anything, feed itself, to walking, talking, sometimes up to five languages at a time, can you know make choices, eat, go to the loo. Um, and then from two till, let's say, teenage, that, you know, it just grows and becomes more cemented and you become like more solid at everything. And then around the teenage years, there's a lot of pruning away of um, pathways that you don't need anymore. Like mm. maybe you're not using all of those languages or, you know, you know, you don't need to like remember how to potty train anymore. And you you start to learn how to socialise how to be in relationship, how to experience your emotions. But that's very active until we're about 25. And I think people really don't realise that. They think you're 18, you're an adult, behave yourself now. <laughs> but actually, we're very volatile emotionally till we're at least 25. And then depending on the kind of family you grew up in, you know, if it was a family with high expressed emotion, so a lot of like raising of voices or crying or throwing yourself to the ground or, you know, just kind of, gesticulating and kind of not having boundaries, then it's going to be harder for you to rein that in. This, what you call addiction to the highs and lows, I would actually say is an inability to manage the extremes of your emotion. Mm. And what I have learnt over time, therefore with age, is that you need to manage the range of your emotions. If you can be like screaming and hating one second, and like, you know, having crazy sex the next, that's because your your range is out here. If you can bring your range, like, and however good it gets, it's going to get that bad. That's what you need to understand. So I'm not saying that you can't have good sex, but, you know, if you can have that within, you know, either a trusting relationship or an absolutely transparent, you know, just, you know, casual relationship, and you've got, you hold your self-esteem within that, you understand what the expectations are, then at the other end, you're not going to have the fall off a cliff, heartbreak, kind of like, you know, wanting to crazily hate and stalk that person. You're going to be like, you know what, I kind of wish that turned out differently, but it didn't, but I can be okay with that. I'm probably going to go into a corner and like lick my wounds for a while, but I'll, I'll come out, I'll come back okay. Um, and it's just, it's not even, that's an example, but with emotions, it's like how happy and excited you feel. That's also how sad you're going to feel if something goes wrong. And what we don't want is to be here and not... Right, completely numb. No, mm. but we equally don't want to be out there. There's a normal range for human emotions where the hormones and transmitters are, you know, within the normal range of chemicals. And we experience emotions in a healthy way. And that it involves both survival emotions and bonding emotions or attachment emotions. Um, so we experience the whole spectrum, but just not too much or too little of any of them. Mm. 